1962, I was in the sixth grade at Butteview Elementary School here in town. It was brand new when we moved in in the fourth grade. And every morning, we would start class, first the Pledge of Allegiance, then the teacher would read from God's Word, the Bible, and then there would be prayer. On, uh, and then one day, uh, some Gideons came. They came into our classroom, and they talked about the importance of reading God's Word every day, and uh, they told us about Jesus Christ. I was already a believer. But uh, they gave me a New Testament, and inside it says Billy Slaybaugh, 105 East 4th Street. There's a donut shop there now. <laughs> At Emma, Idaho, November 15th. 1962. You might remember in 1963, President Kennedy uh, was assassinated. C.S. Lewis died on that same day on November 22nd. And that was also the year the Supreme Court ruled against having prayer and scripture in public places, including the classroom. And uh, our culture has experienced the cascading negative effects morally and spiritually ever since then. Comedy writer Robert Orban said, Sometimes I get the feeling the whole world is against me. But deep down, I know that's not true. Some of the smaller countries are neutral. <laughs> the Lord Jesus stated differently the night he was betrayed. He said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Jesus made it very clear. When we become involved in serving the Lord, serving in the church that Christ builds, we will face obstacles and severe opposition. When you build the supporting walls of your own spiritual life, your own personal testimony, as Christ is being formed in you, you can fully expect that the world, the flesh, and the devil will try to put a stop to it. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and commit your life to him, you want to build your life on the rock that is Jesus Christ, the enemies of Christ will throw everything they have at you, at least everything they deem necessary, just to get you off track, to discourage you, to keep you from living for Christ. There's always going to be opposition from where you are spiritually and where God wants you to be in your relationship and intimacy with him. Obstacles and opposition. Concerning this opposition, the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, his son in the faith, indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we purpose as Grace Baptist Church to serve one another in love, to reach out into our community with the good news of Jesus Christ, Satan and the world says, no way. When a Christian says, let us arise and build, Satan puts out a call near and far, let us arise and stop them. Every type of obstacle and every form of opposition that Nehemiah faced in rebuilding the walls and gates of Jerusalem is an illustration from God's word of the obstacles and kind of opposition that we can expect as Christians when we do the Lord's work, the Lord's way, and serve him, we are against obstacles that we need to overcome and opposition that we need to conquer. Now, initially, Nehemiah anticipated some of the potential obstacles, those related to traveling to Jerusalem, 
the large obstacles that were in his way just to get to Jerusalem, as well as some potential obstacles in facilitating the rebuilding of the city and the rebuilding of the walls. So please turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7, page 560 if you use the Bible in the rack. Nehemiah chapter 2, the, the seventh verse. And uh, we looked at these last week, but I want to look at them again as uh, Nehemiah finally has the opportunity and the permission of the king to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Verse 7 says, And I said to the king, For please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Nehemiah understood that he was going to have to travel through a virtual obstacle course just to get to Jerusalem. He was going to have to go through hostile territory after hostile territory. And the word, when the word got out as to why and Nehemiah was traveling to Judah, he would soon be on the radar screen of all kinds of heat-seeking missiles at that point. The governors of the provinces around Jerusalem and Judah had petitioned the king just a few years before, and at the king's command, they had stopped the rebuilding of the wall by force of arms, a military intervention. Nehemiah was to pass through this same territory of these governors and the enemies who had put a stop to the work of the Lord before. And so in his careful planning, prayerful planning, as he had been anticipating this time, Nehemiah would have wondered, how on earth am I going to get past these guys? How am I going to safely navigate through this enemy territory, through several enemy territories? The governors and the officials surrounding the provinces will stop at nothing to stop me. The last thing they want is for the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt and to be refortified. The king has granted me permission, but they don't know that. Now, Nehemiah had thought this thing through during that four months of prayer and fasting and weeping before the Lord. He would have been stopped at the first border crossing at the, as the first official questioned him, why are you here? And many obstacles are surmountable by just thinking it through, by allowing the Spirit of God to give us direction and insight and depend upon his word for wisdom. Able to think it through. So first of all, he had asked Artaxerxes, the king, for letters of passage to navigate the obstacle course. And secondly, he asked for requisition letters. Nehemiah had already anticipated how to obtain the building materials necessary to complete the massive amount of work. Nehemiah even gives the name of potential obstacle in this request, in this regard, a man by the name of Asaph. It says he was keeper of the king's forest. Now, the word translated keeper is better translated guard. He guarded the forest. You could probably almost see him in your mind right now, you know. He's like that uh, sergeant in the army, the requisition guy, that he's not going to give you anything unless you got it all worked out. So Nehemiah knew that if he walked into Asaph's office and asked for a million board feet or two of lim tum lumber and timber, he, he would have got laughed out of there. But uh, Jesus had said, for which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Nehemiah, having calculated the cost, asked the king for a letter of requisition. We see that in verse 8. In a letter to Asaph, the guard of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. 
Now, being an architect, I love that part. Where are you going to live, Nehemiah? How are you going to get a house built? Where are you going to do, you know, how, how are you going to manage this? And so, in effect, Nehemiah says to Artaxerxes, you know, please add line item timber for Nehemiah's house. That's N-E-H-E-M-I-A-H. Please get, get that right. Thank you. Now, admittedly, planning is hard work. Thinking through the possible pitfalls and obstacles isn't as exciting as just getting out and doing it, but it's necessary. And then the rest of verse 8 says, And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. For four months, Nehemiah had been praying and fasting. Lord, change the heart of the king that I may go to Jerusalem and do this thing. And, And the physical and uh, other kinds of resources that I need. And he says, the good hand of my God was upon me. Then verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me, get this, officers of the army and horsemen. Now a third potential obstacle, one of the largest, was foreseen by Artaxerxes, which is interesting. That's the way God works when the good hand of of the Lord is upon us. You can't possibly foresee all the potential pitfalls and obstacles, but God can. And God knew he was the only one who could handle this one. So God moved upon the heart of the king to send the cavalry to escort Nehemiah to Jerusalem. Officers of army and horsemen. Our God is able to do more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Apparently, Artaxerxes wanted to ensure a safe trip for his cupbearer. Artaxerxes knew these government officials better than than anybody. The king knew they couldn't be trusted. They could very easily do Nehemiah in in secret someplace, throw his body out into the desert, and nobody would have known what had happened to that cupbearer that uh, came through here one day. But an armed escort would keep these other guys in line. But when we come to verse 10... In Nehemiah chapter 2, we see a transitioning from potential obstacles to severe opposition. In verse 10 introduces us two primary opponents to Nehemiah in the Lord's work at Jerusalem. Two men by the names of Sanballat and Tobiah. When Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. You know, in my experience, and the study of Nehemiah is going to bear this out, the obstacles are a lot easier to take and handle than opposition from other people. When the obstacle is a matter of lack of resources or members or numbers of people who are needed to fulfill a task or, or ministry and, or even the circumstances that mitigate against a ministry or service, just because we live and serve in a fallen, corrupted world, Something in us arises to the occasion in prayer and dependence upon God for his provision. You know, I've often said it, and I believe it, if God wants us, wants it done, and he wants to use us to do it, he will provide every resource, whether it's financial or human resource, that's a no-brainer. Now, that doesn't mean our, our faith is not going to be tested in that. It will be tested on a regular basis. But Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
So we know we go to prayer and we seek God and seek his face. But when somebody else gets in our face and says in one way or other, I'm going to put a stop to this. Or somebody works covertly behind the scenes to thwart the work of God and undermine what you believe God wants you to do. That's tough to take. That's tough to handle. We can see God knocking down obstacles one by one. We rejoice that God is at work. We, we praise him for his provision. But as soon as the opposition or the obstacle has a name and a face, it becomes severe opposition, and that's another thing altogether. Nothing discourages a servant of God more than opposition. And that was certainly true of Nehemiah and God's people in Judah. Jump over to Nehemiah chapter 4, page or two in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 5. In chapter 4 of Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah are doing everything they can do to stop the work of God. They're, they're mocking the work of God, mocking the people who are rebuilding Jerusalem. And, and Tobiah says, well, even if a fox should jump on that wall, the fox would knock it down. You know, every architect likes to hear that. But look at Nehemiah's prayerful response to Sanballat and Tobiah. He prays to the Lord in verse 5, Do not forgive their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. When you and I are up against other people, it seems like we just can't win. They demoralize us. They demoralize God's people. The book of Proverbs bears this out. When you confront a person who is a true antagonist, somebody who wants to put a stop to the work of God, who wants to prevent you from doing the Lord's work, you're going to get two different responses. And we see these in the book of Proverbs. You don't need to turn to it. But the first one I call the Sanballat response because it's consistent with who Sanballat is. When, when the antagonist is the Sanballat type who is trying to thwart the work of God, this is what happens. It says in verse 7, the ninth chapter of Proverbs, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Paraphrase, when you sit down with a scoffer like Sanballat, somebody who's trying to stop the work, and you try to reason with them, you try to explain their error, you're going to get the tongue lashing of your life. You will get insult after insult heaped upon you. Sanballat will rip you up one side and down the other, and in these days, he'll post it on the Internet. I've seen it hundreds of times. And you walk away from that person wondering if he's even saved because the response to your correction betrays wickedness, according to the proverb. You reprove a wicked man, and you get insults for yourself. And the temptation that we face is to return insult for insult. Well, you said about me such and such. Well, let me tell you about you. That sounds just like the debates, doesn't it? Insult for insult. Folks, it betrays wickedness. Wickedness. In our study of Peter's first letter, we saw that as believers in Jesus Christ, when we are insulted, we are to give a blessing instead, not returning insult for insult, because we are called for the very purpose of inheriting a blessing. Now, the book of Proverbs also shows us another possible response of a true antagonist. It's in the 26th chapter of Proverbs, the 18th verse, and I call this the Tobiah response. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 18 and 19 says, 
like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. So is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? When confronted, a Tobias says, I was just joking about that thing about the fox knocking down your wall. Oh, can't you take a joke? Tobiah is the one that when you confront him, the barbs and arrows and jabs that he throws at you and your ministry responds, oh, you just misunderstood what I meant. I would never say anything like that. I, I, I would never do that. I was just joking. You think I'm really like that? And you're never quite sure where you stand with a Tobiah. We learn a lot about opposition to God's work as we study the lives of Sanballat and Tobiah. Much of our study in the book of Nehemiah is going to center on these two men and the kind of opposition they represent. Sanballat represents an outsider. He was clearly wicked. He wanted nothing to do with the people of Judah, the people of faith, the work of God. He was only concerned about his own territory, his own power, control, and wealth. Now, Tobiah represents an outsider who wanted to be an insider. There's always a question as to where Tobiah stands with the Lord. Sanballat attacked God's people and the work of God from the outside in the direction of the corrupt world. Con Tobiah constantly weaseled his way into the inside so he could get his own way among the, the people of God. But the result and motivation was the same for both men. Each wanted their own way. Each man was concerned about his own power, his own control. Now, in our study of Nehemiah, we're going to spend a lot of time with these two antagonists, so, so I want to spend a little bit more time this morning in our remaining time together talking about that. With both Sanballat and Tobiah, there's a wealth of historical and archaeological documentation that fully agrees with the biblical account. We know from history that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria during Nehemiah's time. Sanballat's name is Babylonian. It means it comes from sinubalat in Babylonian. The Hebrew word sin means, it refers to the moon god, the moon god sin. Balat means has given life. So Sanballat's name means the moon god has given life. He was paganized through and through. He's called in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, the Horonite, which means he probably came from Horon, which is about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. We'll see if this works here. And historic and archaeological documentation abounds for both Sanballat and Tobiah. I know you can't read that from there, and if you could read it from there, you probably wouldn't know what it says because it's in, in uh, cuneiform. But this is the elephantine papyri, which was found near Oswan, Oswan, Egypt. That's where they built the dam. Remember the Aswan Dam? And it shows that in 407 B.C., Sanballat was governor of Samaria. So when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in 445 B.C., Sanballat was either governor already or hoping to be governor. And he doubtless wanted to have full control of Judea and Judea also. You'll remember that when King Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split into the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, which became known as Israel, and the bottom two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which became known as, as, as Judah. And the, southern, the northern kingdom fell first under the Assyrians, and they were massacred, wiped out, all this ISIS kind of stuff. Some of them were driven out of, their country, out of the country. And then multitudes of people moved back into the background, or into the, the vacuum in, in the country, uh, who, were, who were pagan. And so in Samaria, they had a strange religion of a mix of both uh, 
Jewish and pagan beliefs. And so that whole area became very paganized. And uh, the people of Samaria became a strange mixture of both uh, Judaism and, and paganism. And, and Sanballat was one of these people, and he governed Samaria. In fact, one of Sanballat's uh, descendants, who was also governor of Samaria, built a rival temple in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. Remember that? Jesus met the woman at the well, and uh, she said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, but you say that Jerusalem is where we ought to worship. And so the descendants of Sanballat and the Samaritans remained in religious conflict with Jews even until Jesus' day. Now during the exile, the Persian kings had separated Jerusalem from Samaria. It used to be all Samaria for a time when the Babylonians ruled over it. When the Persians came into power, they, they parceled out the Judean province uh, again. If that not had happened, Sanballat would have already ruled over all this, this land. He was a paganized outsider who wanted to dominate and control Judea. And he will stop at nothing, as we'll see in the book of Nehemiah, to stop the work. If we're trying to do something worthwhile and we're being opposed, it means we're achieving something. Nobody pays any attention when we're faltering. But when we do the Lord's work the Lord's way, we are inviting trouble from the world when we face opposition, it's confirmation that God is doing a work in and through us. We're doing the Lord's work the Lord's way. Now, Sanballat represented an outsider. He represented the people dominated by the thinking of the world. Now, Tobiah represents the outsider who wants to be an insider. Tobiah is the antagonist who tries to do his thing from inside the organization, as it were. Even to the ridiculousness, we'll see when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, that Tobiah moved his residence into the temple, into the temple of God. How better to get your way when you're actually living in the temple? Now, according to Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10, Tobiah was an Ammonite official or servant. He was a servant in the public servant idea. Alongside Sanballat, Tobiah was the governor of the Ammonite region. Uh, Ammonite, we have Ammon, Jordan today. That was the center of, of the Ammonites. Uh, the name Tobiah is actually Hebrew. It's Tov, which means good, and Yahweh, which is the goodness of God. And the ancient Marashu documents called Tobiah Tubiana. Tobiah was a Judaizing Ammonite who gave his sons Jewish names. Tobiah was a descendant from an aristocratic family which owned estates in Gilead and, and Israel. And the Tobiah ancestry can be traced historically clear back to the 8th century B.C., clear back to the time of, of Isaiah. So the Tobiahs, as they're called, had been doing their thing for, for a long time. This is what's called Iraq el-Emir, which means caverns of the prince. There's all these... Their tombs, their caves, they, they've been built. This is 11 miles west of Amman, Jordan. It was the center of the Tobiads for hundreds of years in their religious and political di dynasty. And uh, if you look, just go up to the left bit from the, that big cave opening. And in Hebrew, that says Tobiah. Tobiah is right there on the cave. We don't know if it's Tobiah in Scripture, probably is, or one of his descendants. 
but uh, archaeological findings have indicated that the ruins of a large temple up on the hill above there called Qasr el-Habid, which means castle of the slave, date to the time of the Tobiah in Nehemiah. The building is 60 by 120 feet, and it's been interpreted as a Jewish temple built by Tobiah. In other words, after Nehemiah invited him out of the temple and out of the country, he went and built his own temple by Amman, Jordan. You go, well, is that really plausible? But uh, it's a parable of what's happened in many churches over the last 2,000 years. If an antagonist can't get his way in the church, what does he do? He goes and does his own thing someplace else, and, and uh, Nehemiah is going to help him out. But I want to close with a point and illustration of how the Lord helps us overcome obstacles and opposition. When I was in international ministries at Insight for Living, we were often visited by our field pastors. We called them field pastors because these were the, the voice of insight for living and in other countries and other languages. And they just wouldn't take what Chuck Swindoll would speak and, and just translate it. They were much more than translators because they were pastors, but they're also expositors of God's word. So they would go to the scripture that, that Chuck had preached from, and then they would write their own message to their own people and culturalize it and uh, the other languages in other countries. And we had the joy one year of hosting Peter Miskovich, who was the Russian translator and, and speaker for Insight for Living in Russia. And at the time, Peter was the president of the Russian Baptist Union. And now he's the president of Moscow Theological Seminary, as well as a pastor of Gilead or Golgotha Baptist Church in Moscow. And today he is considered to be one of the foremost Christian leaders in post-Soviet Russia. When Peter visited Insight for a Living, he told us in chapel how he came into Christian ministry and service, having never given it any thought. Never in his, his imagination could he ever think that he would ever be in some kind of Christian ministry. And Peter was a physician living in Moscow when he got a phone call late one night. They said an American at a hotel was ill, and could he come? And since Peter spoke English, he said, yes, I'll come over. And when he got to the hotel, he discovered that the ill man and the others had come were a group of Gideons who had brought the Bible to Soviet Russia, Soviet Union, and the height of all that is communistic and, and, and all of that. And the Gideons didn't know how they were going to get permission or how they were going to distribute the Bibles. And Peter, being a Christian and, and thinking of the most logical thing, he said, let's go to the police station and ask. And everybody go, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's really the right way to approach this. And so they, they go to the police station, and the Gideons go with Peter. And at the police station, they walk into this large room that had five Soviet generals sitting behind a desk. The general in the middle was the chief of police for Moscow, our equivalent to a five-star general. Had medals all over the place, you know, you could just see him sitting there and talking in Russian. And, and Peter nervously told these intimidating figures why they were there. We want to get permission to distribute the Bibles in Moscow. Moscow. It's Moscow, Idaho, Moscow in Russia. And it occurred to Peter 
to ask the general if he wanted a Bible. And to their surprise, the general said, yes. And as Peter started to hand him a Bible, the general said, I must stand to receive this book. And the general stood and received the word of God. He was attentive to receiving God's word. We can learn that from him, can't we? That's the attitude we must have when we receive the teaching of the word of God. I must stand to receive this book. And then the general asked the question, sounds a lot like something King Artaxerxes would ask, how are you going to distribute these Bibles? And the Gideons responded, we don't know. The general said, you take my car. The Gideons distributed the word of God driving around Moscow, Moscow in a black limousine that had Soviet flags sticking up all over the place. And they distributed the word of God in Moscow for the very first time. God is in the business of removing obstacles and overcoming opposition when we do the Lord's work, the Lord's way. Peter's life changed when he assisted the Gideon International Bible Distribution Ministry, became a Gideon. People received the Bible, and they would ask Peter to help them understand the Scripture, but he said, I was not equipped to do so. And so that motivated Peter to study at the Moscow Bible Institute, where he graduated in 1989, and then seeking a deeper, under theolo deeper theological understanding, Peter and his wife, Tatiana moved with their children to the United States so he could study at Dallas Theological Seminary where he received his, his PhD his master, er, in 1997. And Peter has served in an unbelievable variety of leadership roles in Russia, much like the ministry of Chuck Swindoll here in the United States. He says, my dream for Russia is that each town will have its own evangelical church, that each pastor will be theologically educated, that each church will have its own place of worship and that each citizen of Russia will receive the good news. And it all began with one of these. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the, the many accounts that we've heard this morning from your word and from from the voice of our friends, from the, the Gideons, and uh, in other ways, Lord, that uh, show us how you do open doors, how you overcome the obstacles and the opposition that are placed before us when we determine to follow you and do your will. Father, as we go from this place today, may each one of us and whatever you have called each one of us to be and to do in Christ Jesus, may we think of these stories of faith, Lord, as you give us, each one of us, our own story of faith. And we look forward to that in Jesus' name.